I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Serial Box. Serial Box delivers addictive book content in short listen or read installments designed to fit into today's fast-paced mobile lifestyle. Switch between listening and reading with a single click, picking up right where you left off. Learn more at SerialBox.com, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. I'm here today with John Kenny. John is the author of two novels, Truth in Advertising, which won the Thurber Prize for American Humor, and Talk to Me, which just came out on January 15th. His recent tongue-in-cheek poetry collection, Love Poems for Married People, which came out on New Year's Eve 2018, is absolutely hilarious, and you should buy this now for your wife or husband for Valentine's Day. A former advertising copywriter, John has been a contributor to The New Yorker since 1999. He lives with his wife and two children in Brooklyn, New York. So welcome, John, to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. Of course. So lots to discuss today, and I know this is out of chronological order of how you wrote these books, but I wanted to discuss love poems for married people first for many reasons. One, because it's like so ridiculously hilarious and I loved it. And two, because Valentine's Day is around the corner and this is such a perfect giftable item and everybody should be giving it to their husbands and wives and everything. So how did you come up with the idea for writing this little collection of poems after your two novels? It wasn't my idea, actually. I had written a piece a couple of years ago for The New Yorker for Shouts and Murmurs called Valentine's Day Poems for Married People. And it had been passed around a bit and I... Last June, I was at a cocktail party at Penguin Random House, and I was chatting with my editor and a woman who I didn't know, and my editor introduced me as the guy who had written that piece, and she said, you know, I love that. We should do a book about that. And we all sort of chuckled about that, and the next week I went in to meet with my editor about the novel, and she said, that woman you were talking to is one of the people who runs Penguin Random House, she wants to do a book on this, so we're doing a book. (laughs) And I said, great. And she said, the only thing is I would need a manuscript by August 1st, which was about six weeks away. So I, I spent a goodly portion of the summer writing a lot of poems, many of which were terrible and didn't make the book. But yeah, so it was a real sprint. And in contrast to that, how long did it take for you to write your novels? I mean, I know there's so many more words and everything. Yeah, I would say start to finish the novel was, I would say, two and a half, maybe three years. Wow, so six weeks is like... (laughs) Yeah, six weeks was... In that, I was editing the novel at the time, but these were great fun to write. And I can't give enough credit to my wife, who read all of them, and she's a tough audience. So I would say she killed 50% of them, but yeah, they were a lot of fun to do. And didn't you have a goal, like one a day or something? I or? did have that goal at the beginning. That that did not come to fruition because <laughs> it, it was very simple at the beginning. I thought, I've got this many days, I need 75, 80 poems because we'll kill 20 or 30. But there were many days where I stared at the blank page and wandered around YouTube looking at old New England Patriots videos. So. <laughs> you did such a funny impression of your wife reading your poems because yeah. I feel like I do the same thing. Like Kyle gives me something, my husband Kyle gives me something to read that he thinks is hilarious and I'll read it and I don't usually laugh out loud when I'm reading. I'm just like, yeah, that was funny. And he said you did this. He, like when you said your wife does the same thing, he's like, that's just like you. <laughs> I dated a comedian for a while and she said when she would be writing material, if it didn't make her laugh, it wasn't funny. So when my wife says things like, oh, that's... That's really funny. <laughs> it's not funny. And she's a tough old sort of Philadelphia wasp who, you know, you got to drag the laugh from her. But it really, if you get it, it means it's not so bad. 
And she reads everything out loud, right? Don't you have that? She reads everything out loud, which is great because it helped enormously with the cadence of it. I mean, I actually did go back and read a lot of poetry because I, as ridiculous as the book is, I did want it to at least aspire to some kind of poem. I mean, they're terrible in terms of poems, but no, but it's so funny. It, they're not terrible. I, mean, I just it's wanted funny. them. To, I just wanted them to be funny. No, they're hilarious. Uh, would you mind reading one of them? I, I would love to do that. Although I will say that my mother-in-law shared it with a friend of hers, an, an older woman down in Philadelphia, who I think was under the impression that it was a serious book of poetry. Mm. And she was trying desperately to be polite in her critique and said, <laughs> uh, they're certainly different. <laughs> so this one is called, Why Are You in the Shower With Me? Did the bathtub shrink? I asked, because here we are, naked, showering together like we once did all the time. Remember? At the beginning, we would stand and talk, seals slipping by one another, a playful ease letting the other into the stream. Now, I'm not sure what you're doing in here. <laughs> I'm freezing. There's shampoo stinging my eyes. You just stepped on my foot. For the love of Christ, who flushed the toilet? Because I'm being scalded alive. Get out. Now. It was a nice idea, though, honey. Could you close the door? <laughs> So funny. I mean, they're all like so great. Like, and they're just—they're funny because they're true. <laughs> <laughs> and was your wife? She was like okay with you. Sort of. I mean, did you? I mean, you have to like dig into your own. I mean, I don't know. It's funny. We have some neighbors who live on our block, and they're wonderful people, but they're pretty serious. And when I wrote the New Yorker piece, the husband stopped my wife because one of the poems was about like baggy underwear or something like that, <laughs> and he said, "I'm so sorry." You know, your husband wrote that thing about your baggy underwear. He's this elderly gentleman. Yeah. And she's like, oh, no, it's supposed to be funny. I'm yeah. fine with it. Yeah. I show her everything. And so I think she's okay. I mean, I'm, you know, we're now just speaking through divorce attorneys. But I think, I think, she's, <laughs> I think she's fine. Her lawyers say she's okay. So. <laughs> well, anyway, as I've told you like 20 times now, I gave it to Kyle for his birthday. And we laughed like all day long. Thank so, you very anyway, much. Anyway, it's a, it's a great item and a perfect gift. So... And I know that that was sort of like an aside from your serious writing career, which, you know, you've written these great books. You won this humor prize and everything for Truth and Advertising. What was that like, by the way, when you, you wrote your first novel yeah. after years as a copywriter, <clears throat> yeah. went on to win this humor prize? So tell me a little more about that. That was a complete fluke thrill. So the Thurber Prize for American Humor, we got shortlisted. And, you know, Sally, my, Sally Kim, my editor at Putnam & Sons, said, you know, we're, we're one of 18 or something like that. Uh, and I didn't think much. I mean, I was thrilled. And then it was one of nine, maybe. And then we got, it was one of three. And I got to go to the event, which was really fun. You have to stand up and do a little, it was at Caroline's Comedy Club. And you have mm -hmm. to stand up and do a little 10-minute set, read a little bit, and try to make people laugh. And so it was with myself and Liza Donnelly, who's an incredibly successful, hilarious cartoonist for The New Yorker, uh, who's won a gazillion awards, and David Letterman. And... Everyone said, you know, Letterman's not going to show, obviously, because he's Letterman. So I wrote a bunch of jokes about David Letterman. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And so he showed with his monologue writer, Bill Sheft, nine-time Emmy-nominated writer. And they're sitting in the front row. Caroline's is very small. And they're sort of sitting there like, make us laugh, novelist boy. <laughs> so, but, in, you know, I was sure that Liza would win. If not, you know, Letterman was retiring. And, yeah, so it was a real thrill. And Letterman was incredibly gracious. He wrote me this 
Aww. note, and it was really, really nice. So that's awesome. Yeah. And what made you write that first novel? Had you always wanted to write a book? Was there just so much great material? How did it even come about? I did always want to write. I just wasn't very good at it. And, and I don't say that to, to be modest. I mean, I was always writing stories and sending them out and getting lots of rejections, which are wonderful things because they push you. I mean, I really do think failure is a great teacher. And fortunately, I have had a lot of teaching <laughs> in my career. But I was, I was working in advertising, so I was writing. And I started the whole marriage children thing late, so I had a lot of time to write. And I, I decided to get serious about it in my late 30s. I quit a job and I moved to France for a while. And I wrote a very long novel. I had the opposite of writer's block. I just couldn't stop writing, which probably isn't a good thing, because I... I I don't think I knew what the book was about. Mm. And no one published it, which was, again, a good thing. And I went back about a year later, reread it. I took a small section of it and turned that into truth and advertising. So that's how that came to be. And then, which was it talk to me that you wrote during your lunch breaks? I did, yeah. So there was a there was a gap of like four years between... What's the first one called? Truth and Advertising. Truth and Advertising. Truth and Are you advertising. testing me now? Yeah, just, just to see just if you've read it. Sure. I'm paying attention. That's I'm here. right. I'm, I'm, That's I'm, right. I'm focused. For those of you listening, Zibby has left the room, <laughs> and I'm alone. Um, yeah, so I adapted Truth and Advertising into a screenplay, and that took me much longer. I thought, I'll bang this out in three months, but it was about like an 18-month process going back and forth. But then with Talk to Me, yeah, that's that. Wait, um, and to finish that, so what happened with that screenplay and everything? That screenplay, there was a, a big star, Ryan Reynolds, who agreed to play the lead part, and we were all set to go. And then Deadpool came out and did very, very, very well. And Ryan was incredibly gracious. He said, look, I, I'm interested in this, but I have some other things on my plate, like Deadpool 2. Mm-hmm. So the screenplay's in limbo now. So not uncommon is my understanding of the Hollywood world. So we'll see. Okay. We'll see. Yeah, okay, so then, I cut you off. So no, not ahead. at all. So then I was looking for an, a new idea, and I'm fascinated by the media. If truth in advertising is about advertising, but also mostly about this very dysfunctional family, I think Talk to Me is about a man who loses everything. Ted Grayson is the most trusted man in network news, but he has everything stripped away from him. He makes a terrible mistake on the evening newscast one night screaming at a young assistant. And it goes viral, and his world comes crashing down. I think mostly the book is a love story between a father and a daughter who have lost their way. She's 28. She works in new media at a a TMZ-like website. And she's tasked with writing a story about her father, from whom she's largely estranged, and chaos ensues. And you have a lot of commentary on sort of social media, news, the way that people are consuming news through the book. Um, yeah. It's like, if that's if the theme of the father-daughter is like the biggest one, and this is like the next, I feel like this is one of the... One of the things, and you have this really beautiful passage that you wrote, it wasn't merely an escape from the outside world, it was escape from ourselves. It was a muting of our inside voice. Once people sat after dinner on the back porch as evening gently overtook the day, watching the fading light, listened to the din or crickets, to a dog barking down the road, a train going by in the distance, alone with their thoughts, the bravest thing. 
Today, we would do anything to run from our own thoughts, the noise of our minds. So we check the phone, the text, the email, the alert. Why look inside for the answers when you can look outside? Hey, look, a sale at J. Crew. <laughs> Which I started laughing at because that's like exactly my inbox. I'm like, ooh, twenty five percent up. But it's I think it's it's all of ours, and I certainly don't mean it as a criticism, uh, merely an observation. I I just I'm the opposite of an early adopter at the begging of the publisher. I just got on social media, as I mentioned to you a mm-hmm. couple of weeks ago, and it's a blast. It's fascinating, but it's also incredibly addictive. I mean, my son asked me the other day, he said, why are you checking Instagram again? I said, I don't know, <laughs> but it's fun. And it does take us out of ourselves. And this is not new territory, but I'm curious to see what it becomes. Mm-hmm. Because I do think this idea of, I think we're seeing the end of boredom. Because if we choose from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep, we can be entertained. And I don't think that was always the way. I mean, I'm older than you, but when I was a kid, TV ended. I talked to my kids about that. I'm like, what are you talking about? I was like, it ended. It, it went off. There was the national anthem, and then it was snow or a test pattern until 5.30 in the morning when the news came on. Mine went off after, like, silver spoons and but, different strokes. It right. went off in my house. But, but, <laughs> but things used to stop. Yeah. Things used to end. Things used to close. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen anymore. Everything's open all the time. There's always stimulation. Yeah. Always. And while that's fantastic, right, in a way, Mm -hmm. it's fantastic. It's great. There are consequences to that for us personally as adults and in terms of our thinking and Mm -hmm. clear-headedness. And I mean, I don't know about you, but my struggle most days is to find mental space, right, to sit down and to get away from that device and try to put some words on a page. And the pull to those things, the pull to, it's always been hard to sit down and write. Right? That's not a new thing. I'll go walk the dog, I'll have lunch, I'll look out the window. But the pull now is vastly more powerful, right? I have to check a text, I have to look at something, I have to, Yeah. so. I know, I always feel, especially with kids, like, well, I have to be sort of connected, what if? You know, what if? And even when I, like, if I sit down and try to write, which doesn't, I don't even get a chance to do that very often, but I have to immediately shut down everything else, right? Like, yeah. every window is closed on my computer, my phone is off, I have to focus. But I'm like, but what if it's the school? Right. But what? So I have to, there's a, that little sliver, and right. then forget it. Right. you know, then some other call comes in, and right. then it's just, for, just forget it. Yeah. It's, like, impossible. It is impossible. The other morning, my daughter took my phone and hid it in a bag of hers, because she heard me coming up the stairs, and she knew she wasn't supposed to be on the phone. It was a school morning. So she quickly hid it in, like, this bag near her desk, and she has, like, 50 bags. And so I couldn't find—and the ringer was off. Mm. I couldn't find my phone until about—well, she, until she got home from school, because she had an after-school thing, and she got home about 4.30, which means I was without my phone all day. It was fantastic. You were okay? You survived? It was fantastic. <laughs> it's like the best day of your life? It, it was very interesting because there were a couple of hours where I was a little sort of withdrawal, mm-hmm, kind of. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, oh, no one can reach me, which was kind of cool. The sad thing is I think I only had one message. <laughs> so that was a little disappointing. <laughs> and in terms of boredom, we were both just talking about this new essay by Pamela Paul in the New York Times this weekend, Let Children Get Bored, right? Is that what it's called? About how important it is for kids to be bored, not just us, right? Like to have the mental space that we need, but to let our kids just be able to do what they want and 
come up with these like make-believe situations, invent games, make yeah. supports, all that yeah. stuff. Yeah, and this is well-trod territory, but I think it's really interesting because they do lead such structured lives and, you know, inevitably they will find something. You know, my son was homesick this morning and he knows he can't do screens and he's sitting in our bed just sort of staring at the wall. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, 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 oh, no, no, no. No, it's, we're on the sixth day of this. Oh. He's doing better. It's just, so I grabbed three books and I plopped them down in front of him and he started, he opened them, right? You know, a hungry kid will eat what's put in front of him. Mm-hmm. And I find that for myself too. I like being bored because it does send your mind to a different place. This idea of constant entertainment and stimulation is, that's a really new thing in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. It's a really new thing. And it was interesting to see during the Super Bowl, you know, I'd bet $5 that most of those commercials were written by millennials. And there was a theme in a lot of them that technology was bad. Mm. So this is the first real generation whose upbringing has been defined really by technology, much more than television. Mm-hmm. And there were many commercials that poked fun at it, right? That it was this, there was the, I forget, the, it was pretty funny. There was, it was sort of an apocalyptic thing. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's interesting to see their take on it. So. I like the one with Alexa when, he, when Harrison Ford orders all the dog food. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, that was so funny. Yeah. Anyway, but it is interesting. <laughs> so... Back to the book for a second. So you included a lot of really poignant moments about this adult relationship, the father with his with his grown daughter, and also even with the mother. So the mom, Claire, they're both kind of have difficult relationships with, with their daughter, Franny, and she's so busy working that she doesn't have time to even have a cup of coffee for her mom. So her mom's kind of wandering around the city, and she's reminiscing about the time that she literally went into the MRI machine with Franny on her chest, the time she, like, sucked the snot out of her nose on a car trip, all this stuff that you just do. And you wrote, adapt and overcome, as the Marines say, and what was a mother if not a Marine? What wouldn't she have done for this girl? And now, happy for Franny in her new life, her career, Claire still smarted at the selfishness of not meeting for a coffee. So is this like an inevitability that you raise independent children, they grow up, they do their own thing, and it's good that they don't have time for you? Or is there, is there some way to create a happy balance like with kids who are busy but still have time for their parents? Like, will I be completely forgotten is really the basis of my question. <laughs> I can only speak as an observer because I still have little people who I can control their world. But I have five brothers and lots of nieces and nephews, 20s, early 30s even, because they started real young. And it's been interesting to watch. I think what happens even in the tightest relationships is the relationship changes. And I think that's so heartbreaking for a parent. Because it's like your husband comes home one day and just says, I think we should just be friends after 18 years of marriage. It's like, I think we should just be buddies, right? I'm just going to live next door. It's like, wait, wait a minute, what? you're changing the relationship. It's like, yeah, no, I, I know. I think that's what happens with our kids is 18 years of just everything you have. Mm-hmm. And then they say, thank you so much. I'll call you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be in touch. And it's exactly what they should say mm-hmm. and deep down that you want them to say, but it's also absolutely heartbreaking. I have a really good friend, a more sort of macho, tough guy you've never met. And he just dropped his son off at college in late August. 
and he was so proud of him. This is a guy, this working class kid, and he got into Yale, and his dad's driving home, and just, he called me and he said, I was just sobbing. I was just sobbing. And he said it was a combination of incredible pride, but also this relationship's ended. Mm-hmm. It's ended. And that's, that's quite a thing. But I do think they come back. I really do. I think they have to go do their thing. I'm sure you did it. I'm sure you went off to college and, you know, your focus was the outside world. It wasn't back home. Although I did, I did have one night at college because I went to Yale. It was not far away. And I called home. It was like 5 o'clock. I was like really feeling homesick. I was like, what are you guys having for dinner? Because my brother was still at home. My mom's like, oh, we're having swordfish and roast potatoes and some string beans. And I looked at my watch and I was like, I'll be there by 7.30. I'll be, I'm on my way. And I like ran to the garage, drove home, had dinner. I got annoyed within an hour. It was time to leave again. And I drove back to school and went to bed. It was like perfect. And your parents went to bed that night and say, did that just happen? I know. Did she come home? I know. Set a mirage. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know that they were even, <laughs> my mom was even happy to see me. But, but yes, you know, there's obviously the separation and that you have to go through as a grown up. And I don't know. Yeah. I also... I think it's hard for kids, too, because you're trying to figure it out and struggling. And on the one hand, you really need your parents mm-hmm. and want them, but you kind of can't say that in a way, right? Life is a series of miscommunications, I find. You know, how often do you say what you want, have the courage to sort of say what you want to someone? Because, you know, vulnerability is scary. It's really scary, especially if you're 21 or 22 or 23, In terms of the book, the character, uh, Franny, Ted's daughter, is 28 and desperately wants a relationship with her father. But there are so many layers of pain, so much scar tissue Mm -hmm. that she just can't get to it. He's the same way. Mm -hmm. He wants nothing more than that relationship. But, you know, I'm, I'm Irish from Boston, and they say that the only thing that Irish Alzheimer's, the only thing you don't you know, forget is the slights, right? <laughs> and, and I think Ted's that way. He, he wants desperately to be with her, but he can't seem to forgive her and she can't forgive him, so. I loved the scene when he was going through all of her old stuff when he was in the Psych Harbor house. Oh my God, I was ready to cry. It was really awesome. <laughs> so now you're at the stage, you have two books out at the same time. That's really cool. Are really you over- weird, Are yeah. you overwhelmed? Is it like, are you, what's I- it like to have two books? I mean- It's odd to have two books that are so different from Mm -hmm. each other. You know, the novel, I hope there are light parts to it, but, you know, there's some fairly serious stuff. And the love poems is just epically ridiculous. So it's it's really fun to have the two out at the same time. It's really fun. Not sure I'll do that again. (laughs) (laughs) And what do you have coming next? Or do you have more ideas for books? I do. I have an idea for a book, sort of a short, fast novel that leans really heavily into funny. So that's the hope. Awesome. Yeah. And do you have any advice for aspiring authors out there? Learn a trade. <laughs> I am loath to give advice to anyone. I would do the opposite of what I say. Just know that it's hard. And I would try desperately to ignore the noise. Publishing has changed so dramatically. It's always been about business. But I do think it has become really commercialized and leans very heavily into the big sellers. I do think there will always be a space for the small, sort of uh, quiet 
books that tell stories that matter to people. And it's hard to get an agent. It's hard to get published. It's hard to get attention. A book can disappear into the ether really easily, trust me. But write it even if someone's not going to pay you. Write it because you want to write it. And I don't want that to sound cliched because it's a very lonely business. It's a very hard business. It's a long slog. But if it really matters to you, stay with that, believe in it, and make it matter. Really make it matter because very few people are going to champion your book. You have to want to do it as if no one's going to see it. Mm -hmm. I know that's really hard to hear but take it from someone who has published novels that almost no one has seen. But <laughs> Not true. But, yeah, just try to ignore the noise and just stay with your book. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. This thank you for great. having me. For this was really a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on. Today's episode was sponsored by Serial Box, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com, SerialBox.com, delivering addictive book content in short listen or read installments. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Mm-hmm.